Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And you know, being a political podcast, there's a lot of stuff going on locally and in the world that, you know, can be touched on. We could talk about what happened in Russia. Uh, with the mutiny that took place. Uh, We can talk about the comparisons between five billionaires dying underwater in a submersive, can't even call it a submarine, a submersive device, as and the coverage and the emphasis that was placed on them as opposed to the 300-plus people who died off of Greece I'm sorry, died on a Greek ship um, and virtually, well, no coverage, right? Uh, No major rescue plan to the extent that those billionaires got. And there are some of my friends on other podcasts that have gone into it in detail. Um, You know, we can talk about the fact that We're into our second year of the Dobbs decision, which has taken away uh, a woman's right to make decisions health-wise toward her body and the impact that it is having. I could talk about all of those things. But I didn't want to do this podcast that way. Um, I think there have been a lot of people who've interjected their opinions about that, about those items. Um, And a lot of them much more articulate than me. I can even talk about as we're closing out Pride Month, right? And I may touch on that a little bit in how I do this podcast, but the the main thing I wanted to talk about, because it's something that I started 
<coughs> excuse me, started talking about in the last podcast between this fight between African-Americans and African immigrants to America and how uh, this feud, which I think is pointless in the overall struggle, is growing. And it, and it started me to thinking about who I am, right? And I described that I am a black or African-American person. And you can, you know, in my world, you can interchange them, right? But... You know, a lot of people don't really know that are not part of our culture what that really means. So I'm going to tell you what it means to me and why I think it is a blessing and important for me as somebody that has this space in the podcast universe, um, why it is important. I am a native of Chicago, Illinois. I was born there in 1965. And you've heard me mention in other podcasts, but I want to get into it a lot. That I feel that the time that I lived there, those 18 years that I lived in Chicago, were probably the best years for a young black man to develop and to gain a sense of his identity. You know, I grew up on the South side of Chicago. And if any of you know anything about the history of Chicago, the reason why most black folks live on the South side of the city is because at that time, Chicago had two functioning major train stations. Chicago was a major transportation hub. Um, it played a major role in the expansion of the nation, and especially once the railroads were created. Uh, Chicago has its place in American history because of the accessibility transportation. Major highways, um, or interstates, uh, Lake Michigan, the railways, the second busiest airport in the world, and a secondary airport on the south side of Chicago to go along with it. Um, it's a place where people come to. Uh, there are major corporations in and around the city of Chicago. Um, you know, one of the Landmarks is what used to be the Sears Tower, uh, uh, the tallest at one time, the tallest building in the world. Um, and, you know, Kraft Foods is so important in the city of Chicago that they built a road around the factory instead of through it, right? Um, you know, you, you, 
you remember shows like Good Times and movies like Cooley High, and the reality was that Cabrini Green, where Good Times was based, was right across the street from Cooley High School. And right next to Cooley High School was the Oscar Mayer plant, right? And Cooley High School was vocational school, which meant that a lot of those seniors, when they graduated from Cooley, literally went across the street to get a job, right? And, you know, you've heard all the things, the city of big shoulders, the windy city, all this stuff, but and you hear people talk about Black Wall Street in Tulsa and, you know, Harlem in New York. But the city of Chicago, and we had a special area, Bronzeville, uh, in the city. But the whole south side of Chicago was really a mecca for black people, especially black people who were fleeing the oppression and the Jim Crow uh, laws of the South. Myriads of black people from Mississippi, from Alabama primarily came to Chicago. And you, you have folks from Georgia and Tennessee and Arkansas and Louisiana, but the majority of those folks that populated the South side of Chicago came from Mississippi and Alabama and they came via train, right? And so that gets to the point about the two railroad stations. So the biggest station that everybody knows that's still in existence is Union Station. But the black folks couldn't get off of the train there. They had to get off at the Dearborn Station, which is just south of 12th Street, where most people in Chicago know as Roosevelt Road. And the Dearborn train station is still there, but it's not a train station. It is actually now like a, if you've been to Atlanta, like how they've converted the old Sears warehouse distribution building into like a marketplace, that's basically what the Dearborn station has become. And it's like more of a landmark. And it designates the area that we call Dearborn Park, where there's a lot of upscale homes. As a matter of fact, one of the mayors uh, moved into that neighborhood, right? So it's a mixed neighborhood. It's not, and the Chicago police headquarters is right situated in Dearborn Park in that, in that area. And it's, it was there before it became Dearborn Park and it hasn't moved, right? So, since black folks got off of the train at Dearborn station, basically they went south of Roosevelt road. They started getting housing and whatever they could, you know, places to rent and all that stuff south because that was the line of demarcation in Chicago. If you, went north of 12th Street, that was considered white folks, right? Now, there were pockets of white people on the south side, like uh, Bridgeport, which is around, uh, call it Guarantee Field now, but us growing up in Chicago is Comiskey Park, right? Where the White Sox play. 
And that is where a lot of the Irish people that came to Chicago settled and where a lot of our political leaders, white political leaders came from, right? Um, and police officers even. Um, so, so you had pockets in the area I grew up in initially was an upper middle class, some would say even wealthy, white neighborhood, Auburn Gresham. But as the blacks started coming and moving further south, they left, right? And we ended up getting these nice two-flat apartments or big houses that judges and all these folks used to live in, right? And the uh, neighborhood I grew up in, the actual street, I could go north up to 79th street and there was Leo high school and I could go west on 82nd street and be at Calumet high school and Leo high school still had white students coming there. When I was growing up, Calumet high school had become all black. So Calumet high school has a distinction of having people like Hopalong Cassidy as alums and people like Shaka Khan as alums, right? because of the change in the dynamic of the population. But from 1965 to 1983 um, was a really, really defining moment. And it all started, you know, um, when I was in second grade, really. You know, kindergarten, first grade, I went to Walter Gresham School. It was named after a white guy, and I think he was a judge or something like that. But part of the reason why the neighborhood was named that way was because of him, right? And, you know, we went to the school that was named after him. The police station across was the Gresham Park Precinct, you know, all that stuff. And... But in 72, the city of Chicago public schools built two new schools because Gresham was pretty much overpopulated. Um, and so one school was Mahalia Jackson, named after the gospel singer. Uh, who spent a, even though she wasn't a native of Chicago, she spent a lot of time in Chicago. As a matter of fact, my cousin, one of my cousins was an usher at the church that she used to sing regularly at. And then the other one was named Garrett A. Morgan. And based on where I lived, that's where I was assigned to go. And Garrett Morgan is known for two inventions, the traffic light and the gas mask. So part of our understanding growing up and going to school, because at that point, Chicago started building so many elementary schools to leave overcrowding that it, it got to a point where you didn't have to take a bus to go to school. There's a lot of kids in a lot of cities around the country 
that starting from elementary school on up through high school, they have to ride a school bus to get to school. In Chicago, we didn't do that. We walked to our schools. Most of our elementary schools were close enough where we could make a decent walk. And even in the high school situation, we had 64 high schools at the time. We didn't have school buses for that. We could take public transportation. We get like a little discounted uh, bus pass compared to a regular bus pass that people would buy. And, you know, we were able to take the bus to school for high school. But most of the high schools were situated where a lot of those kids could walk to school. Right. Calumet was our neighborhood school, but I went to Limbloom Technical High School, which was a school you had to take a test for and to get in. And so I had to take the bus. And, um, you know, and I and I'm so honored that I that I was able to attend Limbloom Technical High School. And uh, side note, it's been 40 years since I graduated from there, right? So, during that period of time, we got to see a lot of things happen, right? Now, Garrett Morgan, because of the historical thing, our teachers, white, black, whatever, were indoctrinated to make sure that black history was an important part of our curriculum, even though there wasn't a class, right? We literally used to have a black history contest and I, in the one year I didn't win, I was so hurt. Right. And I've, I've may have told that story before, but I took pride in, in studying and learning about, the history of our people that it was an emotional connection for me in a lot of books that we had were because of me winning. Well, I wouldn't say a lot of books, but I, I, I was able to win books that further expanded my knowledge and found out that a relative of my aunt wrote, one of the books that I want, right? So, uh, and, and had a chance to meet him eventually because of the family connection. So, you know, it was part of our culture in Chicago to know about black people and where we came from and the value of our history and understand that, you know, Chicago had, has a distinction of a congressional seat that has been represented by a black person since the 1920s, right? The first district of Chicago, the first district of Illinois was the, is the oldest seat 
held by an African-American in the United States Congress as we speak. Since the 1920s, it was a Republican named Oscar the Priest. And then as the city became a Democratic stronghold, all these folks, even Ralph Medcalf, the guy who, if you watch the films of the 1936 Olympics and you see Jesse Owens and you see this black guy that always seemed to be second, that was Ralph Medcalf. And because Ralph had established himself in the city as a political leader and all that stuff, then Jesse eventually moved and lived in Chicago for a while, right? But that guy that you always saw in the film second, that was Ralph. And so when you have an, a political icon like that, and then the guy that preceded Mr. That, that was before Mr. Metcalf was a guy named William Dawson. And because of that congressional seat he had, he was the preeminent black politician in Chicago. Quick story. Harold Washington, who would later become the first black mayor of Chicago, was running for president of the Young Democrats of Illinois. And Richard J. Daley, who was the Democratic politician in the state of Illinois, and especially in Chicago, since he was the mayor, seemed like forever, right? He, he was in there from, I think, 55 or 56 to 76, something like that. He wanted somebody else, another young man, to have that position. Probably some young Irish dude, don't know. But he was trying to interfere with Washington getting elected. And William Dawson, the U.S. congressman, stepped in and encouraged Mayor Daley to stay out of it. And that allowed Harold to win, right? And I think he was the first black president of the state chapter, right? So you see where I'm going with that? And there was this guy named Dempsey Travis, who was a real estate agent and a lawyer by training. But he he was also one of the historians of black Chicago. And he wrote a couple of books about it. And then in my church. Right. I grew up in the Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, to be exact, which at the time was the largest Lutheran church in the United States. And we were part of our church was historically part of the merger of the evangelical Lutherans and the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. And so all the churches that fell under that were in this special district called the English district, which was nationwide, as opposed to the other geographically based districts. But our church was unique because when our pastor took over, Reverend Oldham, he was part of the black Lutheran ministers that went to Concordia University in Selma, which was a breeding ground for a lot of the black Lutheran preachers in the United States at that time. And they had a connection. A lot of them were related some kind of way, intermarried through and became related, all that kind of stuff. There was a closeness between those young men. And so he landed in Chicago 
and he took over this church that had been white and uh, it became a mission church to get more black people into the Lutheran church, similar to what they did with Piney Woods Country Life School, which later years I ended up working at. Right. And a lot of those young folks that were influenced started a church that I attended in Jackson, Mississippi, St. Philip. Anyway, so when he took over the church, it wasn't a typical Lutheran church. Normal Lutheran church, you go in, you go through the liturgy and uh, all that stuff, and then you're out like within an hour, right? But our church was more like a traditional black church where we actually had people giving testimony and we had a gospel choir, which I was a part of. And just to show you how different that was, the choir itself made the cover of the National Lutheran Magazine. We were the cover story because here we are, a Lutheran church singing gospel. We had a gospel choir. That was unheard of, right? But that's just an example of how proud we were that even in a historically white, historically German denomination of Christianity, we imposed our blackness and it was accepted. Right? And of course, other black Lutheran churches followed our example in the city. So yeah, and we would actually we would have these concerts and we'd go to each other's church and all this stuff. It was it was pretty cool. And we got to travel to other black churches in the city as well to perform. But that was kind of the just an example of the nuance, right? That we were not ashamed of who we were. And during that time, that's when Jesse Jackson rose to prominence, right? He became a fixture in the city with Operation Breadbasket, which is now Operation Push. As a matter of fact, at one time, the Operation Breadbasket was literally walking distance from where I grew up because they had taken over the Capitol Theater at one point. And then they moved over to 47th Street, where they are now, and on Drexel, and they had made the theater, they, they brought the theater back. And, that, and the theater was important because that's where we got to see all the movies we wanted to see. Uh, the closed circuit fights. I remember the Ali Foreman fight, for example. Um, but, you know, and that was, that was our movie theater. Now, every now and then we might go south to Beverly. Uh, but for the, if we wanted to just go or Evergreen Park, which was a white suburb, but you wouldn't have known it because we took over Evergreen Plaza, the shopping center there. That was kind of, you know, a place where we all went, 
right? If we didn't go downtown, we went to Evergreen Plaza because a lot of the stores that, you know, were downtown or headquartered downtown were, they had outlets there. And so we did all that, right? And we, we, you know, so getting back to Reverend Jackson, you know, he had such an influence that when it became Operation Push, he actually created, for lack of a better term, a leadership academy where, you know, once a, once a week, you know, we would go and, uh, or once a month even, I should say, we would go downtown uh, and, you know, meet somewhere where he could sit down and talk to us and, and teach us leadership skills or give us life lessons. Um, and you had to be chosen for that. You just couldn't walk in. And, you know, I was very fortunate to be chosen to participate in that. So you had all that, but then getting back to Garrett Morgan, right? The school, you know, not only did we have the black history contest, but like I said, the teachers, we had my second grade teacher, my very first teacher at Garrett Morgan had written a black history book for children. And so that was required reading for us, even though we didn't have a class on black history, we all had to read that book. And so it was instilled in us day in, day out of who we were and why it was important. Right. And, you know, so we, you know, every, every interaction that we did, Black people were major players in that. It was a shopping district on 63rd Street, right? Where all the major stores, Goldblatt's and Weebolt's and Kresge, which we now call Kmart and Sears, all those folks had stores there on 63rd Street. And there was a bank called the Chicago City Bank, right? Now, all those institutions were historically white institutions, but on 63rd Street, you did not know that because the people that worked at the bank, the people that worked at Sears, Kresge, these are all black folks. So when we went there to shop or, you know, do business, because I had an account at Chicago City Bank, um, that was set up by my aunt, my great aunt. Then it was like, we saw black people in these positions that a lot of black kids in other parts of the country didn't see. Right now, I'm sure there's somebody in Harlem that can say, well, yeah, man, you know, we did that or, you know, Los Angeles, whatever they can say. But in Chicago, it was definite. When we went to school, you know, all the, the only time we had to interact with people of other cultures, really, 
was when we went downtown or went to a sporting event. And outside of Soldier Field, which was just north of Roosevelt Road, and Wrigley Field, the sport venue, Chicago Stadium in Chicago and, and Comiskey Park, two of the sport venues, major sport venues in the city were in black neighborhoods. Well, you could say Bridgeport was a white neighborhood, but the Dan Ryan had been built by the time I came of age. And so more black folks were living closer to the expressway because they actually divided up neighborhoods, right? And so the Dan Ryan, you know, black folks were closer to the stadium and there was an elementary school literally like right across the street from the stadium's parking lot. And then on the other side of the expressway was all of the major housing projects except for Cabrini Green and Alctel Gardens, right? And I probably butchered it, but Alctel Gardens, right? They, those were the two that weren't in that cluster, right? But, you know, black people, and then, you know, the legendary Bronzeville that everybody talked about. That's where my pediatrician had an office. And he had an office in a building that was owned by John Johnson, the publisher of Ebony and Jet magazine. That was the insurance company he owned, Supreme Life. And so Dr. Beasley had his office in that building, which was in Bronzeville. So let me stop right there and go ahead and finish the story on the other side. All right, so we're back. So I was talking about Bronzeville and where my pediatrician was set up in the Supreme Life building that was owned by John H. Johnson, right? In the center, the centerpiece of that Bronzeville community is this giant memorial for black soldiers. It was one of the, that fought in World War One. It was one of the first memorials set up for black soldiers, period, in the country. And if you understand that part of the city, that's where basically the Negro League started, right? And uh, Guy Rube Foster, they had a stadium right around there, and they would play their all-star games at Comiskey Park. You know, they started around the same time as the major leagues did their all-star game around the 1930s. You know, you had high schools named after either famous abolitionists or, you know, and the city of Chicago itself was founded by a French Canadian who happened to be black. John Baptiste Point de Sable. 
and the area where he set up the first settlement is called Pioneer Court, and it's on Michigan Avenue. It's right there in front of the Tribune building. And I think NBC has moved their headquarters over there and all that. Right? Cyclopedia Britannica used to be headquartered right there on Pioneer Court, all that stuff. And, and that's right along the Chicago River. And from where DuSable settlement was, and they built Fort Dearborn, which, you know, was basically the first white settlement um, established in the city, right? Anyway. As a black person, as a young black person learning all of this stuff, you you took pride in knowing that the second largest city in the United States was started by a black man. The first settler outside of the indigenous people that were there, and that's hence how the city got its name because it's a poorly pronounced native version of what grew there, which was like wild onions and stuff like that. And so Chicago was at one time called the garden city, right? The city in the garden, herbs and ordos, something like that. So as a young person learning all of this stuff and watching history in action, watching people getting elected to the city council, watching these black men with afros and these sisters with afros, right? Getting elected to the city council, even to the point where they were chairing major committees. And, and just so people understand, black people were not the majority population as most cities are, you know, uh, now designated, you know, and the political rhetoric is always these, you know, cities run by black mayors and all this stuff. It's, you know, majority black cities and all that stuff. Chicago was not majority black when I was growing up there. Now, when you broke it down, because Chicago broke neighborhoods down based on your ethnic background or your country history, right? Your ancestry history. So you had pockets where you had Irish folks and you had pockets where you had German folks. Chicago was like either the second or third largest Polish citizenry in the world behind Warsaw and, and Krakow, right? There might even be more Polish people in Chicago than Krakow, but I'm just saying they had their own section. And then if you went to the, the if you went to the AAPI community, you had Chinatown, right? 
which in other cities that was just kind of derivative for all Asians to show up. But in Chicago, it literally were Chinese people, Chinese immigrants, because you had a section where all the Vietnamese people lived and where all the Korean people lived, right? And they primarily lived on the north side. But Chinatown was on the south side, right? And so when you break it down and divide it up, you know, whether you're Armenian or, or Ukrainian or where, when you broke the city down like that, black folks from the South was the biggest block of people in the city. Right. And so we just had our own thing. The biggest parade in the city of Chicago was around Labor Day. And everybody knows Chicago for the St. Patrick's Day Parade and all that stuff. But the biggest parade in the city was what we called the Bud Billiken Parade. And that was sponsored by the black newspaper, the Chicago Defender. And it was based off a fictional character they created. And they actually, you know, used that to build subscriptions. They would actually have a contest. And so the young man was Mr. Bud Billiken and the young woman was Miss Bud Billiken who sold the most subscriptions. And a lot of those folks sold those subscriptions at their churches or in their neighborhoods, right? It was not uncommon to see folks knock on the door asking for you if you hadn't subscribed to the defender to ask for it, right? Because that was the contest. You know, and eventually it grew into something else, you know, but, you know, the proceeds went to scholarships for kids in the city you know, all sorts of things. Um, it was, it was just an incredible time, you know, to, to be a part. And then the DuSabu Museum, which is a Black History Museum, was kind of like the ending point for the parade. And, you know, because it was situated, I, I forget, it's either Washington or Jackson Park where it's situated. Somebody that listens to it from Chicago will correct me on that. But it's in that area because those two parks are really right next to each other. And, you know, the parade will culminate there and it it just turned into a big, picnic at that point <laughs> you know a big cookout right um but it, it it's televised it was the first black centric parade that was televised and it was nationally televised because wgn which was a super station by then would broadcast it and that was just the culminating event before we went back to school so it had all sorts of significance. It's like, ooh, man, it's time for the Bud Billiken Parade. Oh, well, you got to go back to school now. You know, summer's over. That was the official end of summer. Labor Day weekend and time to go back to school. So our whole calendar, our whole thing, and then you had all these iconic figures. It was like the Nation of Islam, right? Had an incredible influence in the city of Chicago. They were situated there. Elijah Muhammad and Muhammad Ali's house were right next to each other in Hyde Park. You had Moss Miriam right there on, on Stony Island. I mean, it was all that was, was South Chicago. 
I mean, it was all right there. Um, before the Final Call newspaper, which a lot of people are familiar with now, there was Muhammad Speaks. And Muhammad Speaks was one of the largest distributed newspapers in the country at that time. They had taken over the old Donnelly printing building to publish this newspaper. And Donnelly printing, if you don't know, that the yellow pages. <laughs> the people that printed the yellow pages were based out of Chicago. And they took that old building, their old building over when they built a new one, which is now across from the McCormick Convention Complex. You see where I'm going with that? It's like we were inundated. It was nothing for us to interact with these brothers in the bow ties and the suits selling Muhammad Speaks later final calls, right? You know, it was nothing for us to interact with black people that were doctors and lawyers and all that. I mean, Harold Washington had his law office on 47th Street, which was his dad's office. And if there was ever a mayor that was truly Chicago other than the Dailies, Harold Washington fit that bill too. I mean, he went to, from elementary school all the way through college in the city of Chicago. Right? And got his law degree in the city of Chicago. And he served in the state legislature and in the U.S. Congress and he left Congress. And the very first person, very first election I got to vote in, it was the city election that elected Harold Washington, the mayor, the first black mayor of the city. And one of my influences in politics, other than my great aunt, who never ran for office, never did anything, but taught me everything I needed to know about who these elected officials were and all this stuff, right? Who to identify uh, and the importance of voting, all that stuff. You know, there's this guy named Roland Burris who was from the same adopted hometown as my dad. And my dad's best friend was like, Roland Burris's one of my dad's best friends, one of Roland Burris's closest aides, and we lived on the same block. So I played with that guy's kids, and my dad and him hung out, and you know, come in each other's apartments and all that kind of stuff. So I was surrounded by political people. I was surrounded by black people. My little league coach. And you may have heard me tell this story. My little league coach was a precinct captain. I say little league. It was pony league by that time because we were like what now is called middle school. Because in Chicago, you went from kindergarten to eighth grade. Then you went to high school. Didn't have that break, which they have set up now. We have these junior highs or middle school, whatever you call it in your respective part of the country. We went from we were in elementary school from kindergarten to eighth grade, and then we went to high school from ninth grade to twelfth. 
So you basically went to two schools in your lifetime. And so that's why there's such a bond with us, with our elementary school in Chicago, a lot of us of this age, because we went there for eight years of our life, nine years, really. Because we had to go to kindergarten. It wasn't like some of these states where kindergarten is optional. We had to go. <laughs> we had to go to kindergarten, right? But, you know, the city, the, the culture of the black community was so strong. And the people there were so influential. And what's the word I want to use? Um, open to embracing young people that we know now and scientists, you know, urban sociologists and, and criminal justice folks, all this, you know, or you knew growing up in Chicago that economic oppression and poverty contributed to crime. You knew that. You didn't have to get a degree in that to, to understand that. And so as the economics got a little more dire for black people, we started seeing the residual effects of that, which was crime. And fortunately for a lot of us who left Chicago around in the early 80s, we didn't catch the cracking epidemic when it hit there. But the foundations had been laid, right? Because you started seeing more of the gang thing. And, and, and the gang thing was more about controlling the territory more so than about illegal activity. Now, they were involved in some illegal activities. They were number runners and all this stuff, just like in other major cities. You know, but until crack really hit Chicago, the, the drug thing was not really the issue. <clears throat> it was more, you know, strong arm robbery, that kind of thing, if, if they were going to do anything. And fighting. Uh, got into a lot of fights, right? But even in that, we knew that that was not indicative of black people as a whole in the city. We knew that there were some people that lived in certain parts of the city that did certain things. My dad was a police officer in the Wentworth district, which Look Magazine it said it was the most dangerous police precinct in the United States because, again, that's where a lot of the housing projects or developments, <laughs> whichever terminology you want to use, uh, were situated. So they had their own court. They had their own holding cells, all that stuff, before they took them to 26 in California, which was the, the main city jail, Right. because of what they were dealing with in that part of the city. 
And like I said, we 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 dealt with stuff, but it was it was nothing more than just you know what you see in these after school specials. You know the the bullies, the gang members were trying to be the bullies, right? And you had to fight the bullies, or else they would keep picking on you. And you know, so we dealt with that. But again, we knew that was a segment that wasn't the totality of the black experience. And I emphasize that because in this day and age now, in social media and all that stuff, we have people who use their social media platforms, especially black men, who use their social media platforms to try to paint this picture that we are an out-of-control race, that we are inherently violent, that we are inherently criminal, that we are, um, for lack of a better term, savage. And that in order to fit into society or what others dictate then we have to change our ways as a people and the reality is that the majority of black people in the United States and especially when I talk about the days that I grew up in Chicago were hardworking people they looked out for their family members they looked out for their neighbors they they cared about what was going on in the community they went to church, they rooted for the local sports teams, you know, they shopped, they went to movies, they did, they did everything that people now say normal people are supposed to do. They did that. But they instilled in us a pride about who we were as a people. And it wasn't uncommon for us to take trips. Now, I didn't get to Mississippi until I went to college. But a lot of my friends did go and interact with their relatives that were still in the South, right? And when I got to Mississippi, I interacted with my relatives, right? I got to meet them and eventually develop relationships with them, right? But there was always this connection. It wasn't uncommon. There were a lot of folks from Chicago that went to Jackson State, or went to Alcorn, or went to Mississippi Valley, or went to any one of these other HBCUs, right? Because there was a direct pipeline for a lot of them from the South to Chicago and back. And of course, some folks stopped in St. Louis. They got off the train in St. Louis instead of going all the way. Chicago, once they felt they were north <laughs> if they knew Mrs. Missouri's history they probably wouldn't have stopped there but they did so you have a lot of connections in St. Louis and across the river in East St. Louis, Illinois right uh, black folks from the south settled there but the ones that took the train all the way up to Chicago some kept on going and made the connection to Detroit some made the connection to go to Milwaukee right 
But there was always this connection with Chicago and the black folks in the South. So when people talked about eating coon or rabbit, right? I would, I had done that. <laughs> My dad would, he could cook some rabbit real good. Chitlins and, and grits even. You know, that wasn't foreign to me as it was for a lot of my compatriots in other northern or western cities. It was supposed to be just a southern phenomenon, but because of the black culture and the connection with the south, we experienced that. So it wasn't abnormal for me when I got to Mississippi. Right? A lot of the a lot of the soul food and all that stuff. You know, the comfort food. That, that's what the white folks call it, Southern comfort food. I, I, I grew up with it because there was a connection. And it was part of understanding our culture and part of understanding our history and part of establishing that pride in being a black person in America. And people knew how to survive People knew how to take advantage of circumstances. My dad tells a story about how all those meat packing plants that they had in Chicago and whatever they threw out and stuff, black folks would say, hey, brother, you know, let me get that bucket. And, and people were making meals out of the discarded meat, whether it's pork, beef, whatever, right? They were able to make it and those households thrived and the kids that came out of those households thrived. Now, a lot of them, like me, didn't come back to those neighborhoods. And as the generations that raised us died off or eventually moved out themselves because of old age, and they got rid of the housing projects people fanned out. And now the zip code that I grew up in, which was the ultimate black middle-class zip code became the most dangerous zip code in the United States. And you saw that turn happen right around the early eighties. And then when Harold Washington, after he had won re-election, mysteriously had a heart attack and died, saw weakness in the political infrastructure that the black folks had established. It's reestablished now. And we've had two black mayors back-to-back -back in the city. First time, really, for that. Um, you know, serving full terms of being elected you know, people talk about Eugene Sawyer, but it was like, you know, he, he basically ascended to the position, you know, after Washington died and then Richard M. Daley took over and ruled the city longer, I think, than his daddy did, right? He was the mayor I was talking about that moved to Dearborn Park. Anyway, the reason why I'm going through this memory lane 
thing. It's because I want you all to understand why I think the way that I do. Why it is not a problem for me to speak on issues on behalf of black folks. Why my focus is always, no matter what the world event is, how does that impact us? Why should we care about it? It's because of that background, that foundation. I am proud that I am black. I am proud that I was born a black man. I, I, I proudly identify, as the term we use now, as a black man in America. I have no shame in that. I thank God every day that I was born black and not white in America. I just think of what a burden it is from the outside looking in to be white in America, to have to make a decision of whether I want to vote for oppression or progress every election. It's easy for a black person. I'm voting for progress each and every time. Now, growing up in Chicago, the dynamics of Illinois politics was different than maybe the South because you had Democrats and Republicans who were black and white that were debating issues. And there really was a clear delineation about liberal and conservative political ideology but the black politicians were always about black folks, regardless of whether they were conservative or liberal. Now, in Chicago, if you wanted to be successful in politics, you pretty much had to be a Democrat because the city was democratically controlled. And that was established by white people. And then as black people took over, especially once black people gravitated to the Democratic Party in the South and blacks in Chicago took over the Democratic Party. To an extent, right? And you have a lot of white Democrats in Chicago, a lot, overwhelming, right? You know, and if you were a Republican in Chicago, it was because of the wealth that you had. Now, I don't know if that MAGA infection probably has. You know, in the southern part of Illinois, most definitely, but in the city, I think that's where a lot of the Republicans that don't like Donald Trump, and that's where they hang out, right? But it's Democratic city. So needless to say, that shaped my political thought too. But, and I didn't make that transition when I came south. There was an avenue for black people to be successful politically in Mississippi as a Democrat, and that's what I did, right? And I attached myself to white folks who were Democrats in Mississippi. So, you know, there was, but there's, there's nothing that anybody can say or do to make me ashamed of who I am. And I will defend the beauty, the pride, the essence of being a black man in America 
because of that foundation that I had in Chicago. And I really wish that every black child in America has that same opportunity. It's apparent that it's not based on people that I see. And then, you know, but but we're individual thinkers. And, and there's one particular guy I've seen on social media where it's like his mom went through all this racism and all this stuff. And he claims he hasn't experienced any of that. So his mindset is totally different. His mom's going to love him because she's his mom, you know. But what he says and how he projects himself, and, and it's not about being monolithic in thought. What I would say is that we should be monolithic in purpose. Let me say that again. We don't have to be monolithic in thought but I do challenge us to be monolithic in purpose. Because if you are of the classic conservative movement, or if you are of the classic liberal movement, if you are black in America, your objective in whatever movement you are tied into should be the uplift of black people in the United States. There's no reason to deliberately parrot rhetoric that feeds into oppression, that feeds into systematic racism. And yes, again, for all these black folks that keep saying that it's there's no racism in America, stop that. Stop. There is. And it's not just isolated individuals. It's systemic, systematic, however you want to phrase it. It's a design that was created before this country even was founded. And it still plays a major role in why there are discrepancies in healthcare, in housing, in education an economic opportunity period between white folks and black folks. And until we change that, not deny it, change it, it's going to be the way that it is. If anybody should be an isolationist, it should be those of us who grew up in a place like Chicago from 1965 to 1983, we should be like super pro-black militant. Don't want nothing to do with white folks, all that stuff. But we, we learned that the value of human beings was important while still maintaining our pride. We get the concept that all lives matter, but we damn sure better convey that black lives matter. That's, that's our mindset. You know, 
we we were not taught to discriminate. We were taught to embrace ourselves, be proud of who we were, and take that out to the rest of the world. Yes, we had to talk about dealing with the police. Yes, we had to talk about we had to be twice as good as the white folks to, to get ahead. We We had all that. But the most important thing was to help us achieve and to navigate the world that we live in was our sense of ourselves. And until we get back to that, or should I say, put more emphasis on that, we can be easily influenced by people that look like us that try to tell us that we should do better. Africans, descendants of Africans that live in the United States, that were born and raised in the United States, are some of the most spectacular people to ever walk the face of this earth. And I'm not saying that to be smug. I'm not saying that to be racist. I'm just stating a fact. When you really understand our history, which some people don't want us to know, for whatever political agenda they're trying to achieve, when you understand that, when you understand the value of that, you can't in good conscience turn around and say, we got to do better. Yes, there are some people that need to stop criminal behavior. Yes. And that was another important piece, and I've talked about it Uber's times before, you know, when the when the crime stuff started happening. And I come back to the city in the summer, I got involved with the Black on Black Love campaign to making sure that we respected each other to the point where we weren't trying to take each other's life over substances we didn't control or make over property we did not own. You can call it a market or whatever, the corner. It wasn't worth killing each other over, and it's still not. So, I get dealing with that. I get dealing with having over-emotional or aggressive behavior dealing with mundane situations. But when you glorify television shows that show division among black women or black men, right? When you glorify social media posts that people are acting in an unacceptable way. That has influence. So that part of the argument, I kind of get, but when you try to flip it and make it seem that all of us do that, I'm not on that train because I know better because I grew up in a strong, vibrant, prideful black community and I know the beauty and the power and the essence of being black in America 
why that means something, why that's something that we should never, ever be ashamed of. No matter who's doing something foolish, crawling through a Popeye's window, <laughs> drive through window, whatever, right? That's not us collectively. Just like they try to flip it and say, well, it's just a few individuals. It's a few individuals that act bad in every ethnic group in the United States. If this was true, if we were totally bad people, then every prison in the United States would be 100% populated by black people. But that's not how that works. And when you think about the history of this country and how crimes were designated to target black behavior or what they thought was black behavior, then you can understand why we make up 13% of the population nationwide, but 30% of the prison population nationwide. When you're arresting 60, 70, 80 year old homeless black men, and charging them with a felony crime that they don't have the money to bail out on. Right? That's why you see a disparity. It's not because of our nature. It's a system. That's why when I hear people say, Black people that are trying to attain political office say there's no racism in America. You're lying. Whether it's out of ignorance or deliberately, you're lying. When they say there's no element of white supremacy in the United States, that the system is not designed to give people an advantage because they're white, that's a lie. But the beauty of black Americans, the beauty of African-Americans is that despite all of that stuff, we have steadily gained more dignity and more power economically and politically in this country. We still have a ways to go. Despite certain achievements we've made, but I'm, I'm telling you, that no matter what you say or how many followers you have, you can't stop me from being proud of who I am. And I hope those who are listening adopt that same mentality. Until next time.